Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for being you. Thank you for being the God who loves us. Thank you, Lord, for creating this world and placing us here, having shaped us with your hands and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Lord, you are a holy and a righteous God, and you are a just and a sovereign God, and we humble ourselves before you, Lord, recognizing your glory and your goodness, and so grateful for your love and your grace. Lord, we need you. As the song says, every hour we need you. Lord, this morning, we need to hear from you. As we open the pages of your book together today, I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to understand and to receive all that your spirit has for us in the scriptures, that we would receive it, that we would believe it, and that we would obey it and be transformed by it. Glorify yourself in this place this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue our study through this incredible epistle. We are this morning in Ephesians 6 chapter 16, but again for context, I'll begin in verse 10, in which Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith is where we find ourselves this morning. That is the the topic that we will be examining today. Paul, of course, is modeling this armor that he is referring to upon the armor of the Roman soldier. And and the Roman soldier, of course, had a belt or a girdle that went around his waist that held everything together. And we've identified that as a symbol for truth, that which binds it all together, that which holds our righteousness and our strength. It, it, It is the truth upon which we can rely, the truth of God's word, and the truth that is Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. The gospel is the truth, and that truth we wear girded about our waists, and it holds us together, and it gives us strength. And we've talked about the breastplate of righteousness, that covering that protected all the vital organs of the soldier, and we've recognized that that breastplate of righteousness is not 
our righteousness. For our righteousness, the scripture says, is as filthy rags. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous. No, not even one. Jesus told the disciples that unless their righteousness exceeded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this breastplate of righteousness cannot possibly be my own personal righteousness because that could never protect me from anyone. But God caused him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we in him might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So the righteousness that protects us and shields us, that guards our heart and our vital organs, that is a righteousness that is attributed to us by God through the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. And we wear that as a breastplate to protect us as we move through this world, amen? And he went on to say, having your feet shod with the preparation of of the gospel of peace, listen, wherever we go, we need to take the gospel of peace with us. And that is not just peace, but it is the peace with God that brings the peace of God that is attainable only through the son of God whose blood was shed for us. In other words, it's only through the gospel that we can find peace with God. We were enemies of God, but we have been brought near and made part of the family of God because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we need to be prepared to share that gospel. You can't run a race unless you tie your shoes. Because if you do, you're going to fall down and we need to tie our shoes. We need to be prepared to share the gospel when the opportunity presents itself, when God opens that door to a person's heart through their ears as we profess the gospel to them. Because we have been made ambassadors of Christ and it is our job to plead with them to be reconciled to God through the gospel. That is the preparation of the gospel of peace with which our feet are to be shod. So we've talked about all this. If you want to know more, then you can look it up online or read about it. But you know, we've got that belt of truth and we've got that breastplate of righteousness and we've got those, those feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And, and these are all things that, that we possess and that have been done for us. And, and what, what they are what they are saying is, is that once you've got these, once they are on, once you put those pieces of the armor on, you don't ever take them off. People sometimes say, did you put your armor on this morning? And my response is, I never took it off last night. I sleep in that armor. That's what we're supposed to do. Righteousness, peace, truth. Those are not things we put off and put on. They are with us. They are part of who we are. They are the armor that God has given to us and it is ours to wear and we should never forsake it. But now we, we move into a new phase or, or, or a new descriptor as we look at, at this armor. As we look again, he said here in verse 13, taking up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist. That's past tense, isn't it? Your waist has been girded. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your waist has been girded with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, you've already put that on. You've already received a righteousness from Christ that is attributed to you. That's past tense. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, man, that gospel is ours to declare and everywhere we go, we take it with us. But now we move into a new way of looking at this. And he says, above all, taking the shield of faith, not having 
put on the shield of faith, but, but taking it. You are to pick up the shield of faith. It is a purposeful act that you engage in. Taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now this, as I was explaining, is a shield of the Roman soldier. And the particular word in the Greek that is used for shield here reveals to us that it is not some little shield necessarily that's just used for sword fighting. You know, you see those little round ones that they use and you can move it all around like that and you got to block with it. No, this is a big shield. This is a shield that would be about two and a half feet across and about four feet long. And it was a shield that when you held it up, it covered your entire body. It was above everything else. It was external. It was over everything else. And let me tell you, our faith is to cover that breastplate of righteousness. Our faith is to enclose that belt of truth. Our our faith even prepares us for the preparation of the gospel of peace. So our, our covering is that shield. Think about it the righteousness we receive from Christ, how do we receive it? By faith. The truth that God's word is true and that Jesus Christ is the truth. How do we receive that revelation? Through faith. The preparation of the gospel of peace, we can declare it. Why? Because we believe it by what? By faith. Faith is over all of this. Ephesians chapter two says that you are saved by grace through what? Faith. And that not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. But we are his workmanship created unto good works that God prepared in advance for us to walk in them. So that faith is over or above all. It doesn't mean it's more important than the others. It means that it's the covering that covers the whole thing. All of it. Our interaction with God is based upon faith. Think back to that story that you've heard probably many times, every Easter probably, about how the disciples were there in the upper room. Jesus has been crucified. They're terrified. They're sure that the the authorities are going to be coming after them next because they were with Jesus. They walked with him. They, They were on his side. They were his known associates. And it was only a matter of time until the authorities came for them as well. And then add to that the, the confusion that, that some women from their, from their number had, had reported that they had seen him alive. I mean, come on, seriously? If he were, would he really have appeared to women first? Come on. I mean, that was the mentality in that day, wasn't it? And so they're huddled there in the upper room and the door is closed and locked. And then all of a sudden, there is Jesus standing in their midst. And they are blown away. And, and, and they, they're, they're embarrassed that they hadn't believed him. And, and, and they saw him there. And, and he had, you know, the nail prints in his hand and, and his side, the wound that he had received while hanging there upon the cross. And, and you know what? Those 10 disciples that were there in that room, they believed. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Ken, 10 disciples? I thought there were 12 disciples. Okay, well, first of all, we're down by one. Remember Judas? He's, he's out of there. Well, then there should be 11, right? No, one of them wasn't there that morning. Do you know who it was? You remember? Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. He missed that opportunity to meet with the Lord. I guess he should have gone to church that morning, right? When we don't, 
we miss out on opportunities to encounter the Lord, to be in his presence with the body of Christ. Well, Thomas finally shows up. And the other 10, they're like, dude, you would not believe what happened. We saw Jesus this morning. The the girls were right. Jesus was here. Mary was telling the truth. He was right here with us. And Thomas is like, whatever. You're crazy. No, that's not possible. We saw him die. He couldn't possibly be alive. He says, look, I'm not going to believe it until I see him for myself, until I take this finger and put it in the hole in his hand, then I'll believe it. But until I can do that, there's no way I'm going to believe it because it just doesn't make any sense. So a week later, Thomas is with them this time and they're in the upper room. All of a sudden, doors locked, closed. Jesus is there in their midst again. And before he does anything else, before he says anything to anybody else, he says, Tom, come here. Put your hand right here, right? Put your finger right there. Put your hand in my side. Let's see. Come on, Thomas. Let's deal with this issue. You need proof, Thomas. Here's your proof, Thomas. But you know, I never read that Thomas put his finger there. I read that Thomas fell down and worshiped and said, my Lord and my God. Amen. And you know what Jesus said to him? He said, Thomas, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are they who believe having not seen. You see, believing having not seen, you know what we call that? Faith. I can believe my eyes, and that says that I have faith in my eyes, but if I believe the word of God, then that means I have faith in the word of God. And faith in my eyes is not saving faith. Faith in God's word is saving faith. Paul wrote in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes through believing what it is that God has said. (laughs) I really do. If we're going to talk about a definition of faith, it would be incomplete if we didn't look at Hebrews chapter 11. So let's go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews 11 verse 1, the writer of Hebrews states, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There are two words that as an English teacher, I find very interesting. A lot of words I find very interesting, but for this context, I suppose there are two that come to mind primarily. One of them is the word concrete and the other is the word abstract. Are you familiar with these words, concrete and abstract? Concrete simply means Material, you can see it. It's a, a thing, you can hold it in your hands. It's, it's like concrete, it's hard, it's solid. But abstract, you can't really hold something that is abstract. Now I'm talking about abstract art. I mean, you can go pick up a Picasso for sure. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the concepts, which in itself is abstract. There are concrete nouns, bench, Building, church, 
there are also abstract nouns, liberty, freedom, church. Did you notice how I said church twice? If I'm talking about the building, that's concrete. But if I'm talking about the body of Christ on earth, that's, that's abstract. That's an idea. It's a concept. Well, faith, by definition, is not concrete. Faith is abstract. And when something is abstract, it can be difficult to comprehend. And so what we do in order to better comprehend abstract concepts is we use a thing called symbolism or we use a symbol. In other words, we compare an abstract idea to a concrete noun in order to better have a grasp of their shared properties. So faith is the abstract and shield is the concrete. So shield or a shield is a symbol that the writer of scripture is using to help us conceive of the idea of what this faith is. So faith then is like a shield. And what do you use a shield for? You use a shield to protect yourself and your fellow soldiers. When the Roman soldiers, when the Roman legions would march out into battle, they would march all lined up. And when the enemy would throw arrows at them or spears and they would shoot those volleys of darts at them, what would they do? Well, the first line of defense, they would get down on on one knee and they would put those shields right in front of them and they'd lock the edges together so that they formed a shield wall. And then the next row, the next row of people, they would come up and they would set their shields up on top of those shields. And then the ones behind them, they would put those shields up over their head. And so what did you have? You had a solid barrier against the attack of your enemy, but that barrier is far more effective when utilized in unison together. In other words, my faith can strengthen your faith, which can strengthen my faith, which can strengthen all of our faith. So those Lone Ranger Christians, yeah, you may have your shield of faith, but who are you gonna lock that thing with, right? We need one another, We need to march together in the battles that our king is leading us into and we need to be equipped for those battles. And when your faith is weak, I need to lend you some of mine and vice versa. We are to cover each other with these shields. Our faith is a defensive weapon that we use against the attacks of the enemy. Now, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here through the use of this symbol that taking up, above all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy, we need to think for a moment about three things. Number one, What is this concept of the shield, which we've been talking about? What is faith exactly? And how then do we use that faith? And then thirdly, what are these fiery darts that it is to help us to quench? Well, if faith is the defense, then the weapon that faith is defending against must be related in some way or another to doubt, right? Because belief is the antithesis of doubt. So what is it that Satan wants us to doubt? 
Well, there are three things that come to my mind when I think about that. Satan wants you to doubt God's word. He wants you to look at God's word and to be skeptical of it and to doubt whether or not it is truthful, whether or not it can be believed, and whether or not it is applicable to your life in the modern 21st century world that we live in. And that's how he began from the very beginning. When we see the serpent talking to Eve, what's the first words out of his mouth? Did God really say, right? The first thing he tried to do was to bring doubt into her heart against God's word. Now, if Eve, rather than listening to the serpent, had simply believed God's word, then would she have been tempted by this serpent? No. The second thing that Satan wants you to doubt is he wants you to doubt God's goodness. Oh, you know what? You will not, you won't surely die. In other words, he accused God of lying. It's not just that he questioned God's word. He accused God and contradicted God of a blatant falsehood. He was trying to undermine God's goodness. If you find out that a good friend of yours is lying to you, or worse yet, if you find out that your husband or wife is lying to you, how does that affect your relationship with them? That brings conflict, doesn't it? It brings distrust. You doubt their goodness. See, Satan wants you to doubt God's word. Satan wants you to doubt God's goodness. There's another thing that he wants you to doubt. He wants, you can say that God's word is true and you can even go so far as to say that God is good, but if he can make you doubt this part, it's gonna undermine your walk as well. He wants you to doubt that God has a plan for your life. He wants you to think that God doesn't care about you or that, you know, what did he say to Eve? He says, oh no, you know what? He just knows that if you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God's. In other words, that's not part of his plan for you. God doesn't have a good plan for your life. So if God doesn't have a good plan for your life, maybe you need to come up with a plan on your own, right? By the way, that is the root of secular humanism. I don't need to get into a whole worldview lecture here today, but, but you know, we started with theism, this idea that there is a God and that he is involved in the lives of humanity. And then we moved a step away from that into deism in which they said, sure, there's a God and he created everything, but you know, we're logical people now. We don't believe he's directly involved. He just wound it up, let it loose and, and we're on our own now. That's deism. And then Darwin came along with his theory of evolution and gave birth to the worldview of naturalism, that all that is is what we see, can hear, and touch and taste and smell. It's just a, a natural world. In other words, there is no spiritual life whatsoever. We're naturalists or materialists. That's our worldview. And of course, that was an unsustainable worldview because if all there is is what you see, then is there anything that matters? No. If all we are is a conglomeration of cells and chemicals and proteins and hormones, then we're just automatons running through life and we might as well enjoy ourselves and have fun. Well, that ended up resulting in a worldview called nihilism, which said that nothing matters. That's an incredibly depressing thought, but it's incredibly honest as well. I'm just going to say, if you are not a theist, if you don't believe that God is, then nihilism is at least honest. Nothing matters. Because without God, what does, you know, if I don't like you, 
and I just want to kill you and I can get away with it, then why shouldn't I do it if there isn't a God? There was a professor who had that conversation with a class full of his students. And he says, let's assume for a moment that there is no God. Let's assume that the Bible and other world religions, they're not true. All that is is what we see. All, this is it. I don't like you people. I think I'm going to pull a gun out of my desk drawer and shoot every one of you dead. Convince me why I shouldn't. Well, you'll go to jail. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Well, well, you shouldn't because of this. You shouldn't because they came up with, tried to come up with all kinds of reasons, but none of them could come up with a single reason that he shouldn't shoot them because there was no eternal accountability. And when there is no accountability, then people can just do what they want as long as they're willing to suffer the consequences for it. Finally, one of the students said, well, if you do decide to shoot us, it'll make quite a mess. Somebody's going to have to clean that up. And the professor said, you know, that's a good point. I don't like messes. I don't want to have to clean that up. Okay, I won't shoot you. But think about it. When we divorce ourselves from the accountability of the creator, then the creation can run amok and do whatever it wants and there's no true accountability. Well, that was nihilism and it was an incredibly, incredibly depressing worldview. And so society decided, you know what? We need meaning. There needs to be purpose in life but we don't want to submit ourselves to a God who provides that. So, ah, here's what we'll do. We will make our own purpose. We will create our own meaning, meaning and purpose generated by human beings. And that's where we get humanism. The ideas of humanism, the idea that something has meaning because I want it to have meaning. No logical basis for it whatsoever, just my preference, but now it has meaning and I can lie to myself and to society and pretend that something has meaning even though, according to the nihilists, it doesn't. And that's where the world is right now. We live in a world that is shackled by relativism and they call it liberty. But what they don't recognize is that true liberty can be found in the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. Because the enemy came to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus said he had come to give us life and that eternal. Amen? So what are the fiery darts of the enemy? They are darts that are designed to set fire to your life. They are Darts that are designed to spew confusion into your world. Disorder, confusion, discord. And the root of those things is the doubt that God's word is true, is the doubt that God is good, and the doubt that God has a plan for your life. But what does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? It says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. See, God is good. God has a plan for your life and God's word is true. If I can hold by faith to those realities, then whatever darts the enemy throws at me, I can put those out because I believe that what God has said is true. And how do I know that I believe it? I believe it because my belief 
exists and has an impact on my life. And you say, well, wait a second. According to Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That means you can't see it. Well, can you see the wind? You can't see the wind, can you? But there are a lot of people down in the panhandle of Florida right now who can see the effects of the wind, can't they? And that wind had an incredibly destructive effect. Well, faith is like a wind that can have an incredibly positive effect in your life, but an effect no less noticeable than the effects of the wind that blew through the panhandle of Florida just a week or two ago. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, and by it, people did things. We read in verse two, for by it the elders, those who have come before us, obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the words, that the worlds rather, by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But faith, but without faith, Without faith, verse 6 says, it is impossible. Again, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Why is that? Because if you don't believe that he is, you're not going to come to him. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, by faith, I believe that God exists. And by faith, I believe that if I seek God, God will reward me for having sought him. Well, what are you rewarded with when you're seeking something? You're rewarded by finding that which you've sought. And so if I seek God, I believe that I will find God. And he says that those who diligently seek for me with all of their hearts, what does he say? They will find me. So faith in the lives of these people who went before us always resulted in identifiable actions. Now you might say, well, wait a second. I thought we were saved by faith, not by works. Of course, we're saved by faith, not by works. But if we are saved by faith, then works will follow as the validation of our faith. Amen? Even as Ephesians 2 said that God prepared those works in advance for us to walk in, right? God's prepared things for us to do. And he has given us the shield of faith to protect us as we do them. Uh, in preparation for the study today, I was, I was looking up some things that different men said about faith and different people had said about faith. And I think one of my favorites, no surprise here, was uh, Tony Evans. He said, faith is believing that what God says is true, right? That's really what it comes down to. Faith is believing that what God says is true. And he goes on to say, 
It's believing it is so or acting like, that's what he said, it's acting like it is so even when it's not so, so that it can become so because God said so, right? I got to say that again. Faith is believing that God's word is true and we live that out by acting like it is so even when it's not so, so that it can become so because God said so, amen? There's a bumper sticker (laughs) that I remember seeing years ago, and I've mentioned this before, but I think it's been long enough that most of the people that were here when I said it last time aren't here anymore, and you are here and you haven't heard it, so I'll say it again. There's a bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. How many of you have heard or seen that bumper sticker? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. First of all, that is an erroneous, an ero- it is an erroneous statement. That's not a true bumper sticker. It's got an extra sentence in there. Whether or not I believe it is irrelevant. God said it and that settles it. Now, my believing it allows me to receive the benefit of it, but it's settled whether I believe it or not. The truth is the truth, regardless of my interpretation of the truth. The truth is not subjective, it is objective. And God's word is truth. Amen? And I believe that by faith. And the fact that I believe that by faith results in a particular set of actions in my life. Now, I want to go back one moment to another passage in Scripture, and it's in Genesis chapter 14, and I'll I'll probably end here today. In Genesis chapter 14, there is a huge battle. And this is fairly self-explanatory, so it's story time. Are you ready? I'm I'm going to read to you for a minute. And then we're going to talk a little bit about something that comes at the end. It says here in verse one that in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Adiach, king of Elisar, Tedeloamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shina, king of Adma, and Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzim, in Ham, the Emim. In Shava, Kirathaim. Now you might be saying, wait a second, uh, Pastor Ken, are you pronouncing those names right? I want to tell you a secret. When you come across names in the Bible that you don't know how to pronounce and you're in a situation where you have to read them out loud, just say them with confidence and nobody will ask any questions. That's how you do it. Verse six, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to En Mispat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizan Tamar. 
And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Edom, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sedem against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, title king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and they went their way. And if that's all there was to the story, it might not even have been included in the scriptures. If all it was was a story of confederacies and kings with weird names and they're fighting amongst themselves, it would probably never have risen to our attention or have been included in the text. But you see, there was an individual who was caught in the crossfire between these kings. He was a fellow by the name of Lot. And if you remember your Bible, you know that Lot was Abram's nephew. And that Abram and Lot, they had, they had grown so wealthy during their travels that they could no longer live together. And so, uh, you know, because they're herdsmen, they were starting to argue about things like watering rights and feeding the flocks and all of that. And so Abram had said to Lot, he says, look, the whole world is out here in front of us. You choose to go in your direction and whatever direction you choose, I'll go in the other. And Lot had looked down and he'd seen the well-watered valley there in the plain outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, I'll take that one for myself. And so there he went and Abram went the other way. And though they separated because they needed to physically separate, they were still family. There were no hard feelings between them. And Lot had gotten caught up in the crossfire of the battles between these kings. And verse 12 says, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. So he is now a refugee and a prisoner of war. Verse 13, then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner, and, and they were allies with Abram. So Abram, he had his own set of friends and allies that he could call upon. Verse 14 says, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, so he's got 318 against the armies of five kings. Would you say that the odds were stacked against him? It certainly would seem so. This is the stuff of fantasy fiction novels, friends. This is the, the plot line to many a story, the, the small little band of faithful warriors against the onslaught of the enemy hordes. How many times have we seen this story unfold? He divided his forces against them by night and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobo, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. Now, we don't get the play-by-play on the battle. We just know that it was a night attack, that he divided his forces and that he was victorious. Verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. 
And then Melchizedek, king of Salem. We know that this is a typology of Christ and possibly even a theophany, uh, possibly a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, We can debate that at some other time if you'd like, but suffice it to say that this Melchizedek is one to whom Christ was compared in the book of Hebrews. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. We are actually going to bring out the equivalent of bread and wine this morning as we partake of communion. What does that mean? It means that Melchizedek was offering communion to Abram. He was the king of Salem, which stands for peace. So this priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, having neither mother nor father, comes out and offers bread and wine, the body and blood. And he is the king of peace. And we know that Jesus is the prince of peace, amen? And so we see this imagery and this symbolism take place and it says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine and he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him, he blessed Abraham or Abram and he said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. How is it that Abram with his little band of soldiers trained in his own household was able to defeat the armies of five kings? How did that happen? God gave him the victory. When you enter into trials and temptations, when the enemy of your soul throws his fiery darts in your direction, how will you overcome him? By holding up the shield of faith. Faith in what? Faith that your God's word is true. Faith that God is good and faith that God has a plan and a purpose for your life and that there's nothing that that enemy can do that can defeat you or stop you or tear you down. God, most high God, he has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, that is Abram gave to Melchizedek, a tithe or a tenth of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high. When did he do that? Probably right here in this instance with Melchizedek. I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Who does Abram want the glory to go to? He wants all the glory to go to God. He says in verse 24, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. This is the first appearance of the world of the word. This is the first appearance of the word shield in the scriptures. And who is identified as the shield? God identifies himself as the shield. He says, Abram, I am your shield. I'm the one that protected you in that battle. And 
I'm your exceedingly great reward. The king of Sodom, he's not your reward. Those things that you got, that's not your reward. Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward. And the same thing that God said to Abram, he is saying to you today, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. Believe that God's word is true. Act like it is so, even when it's not so, so that it may become so, because God said so. And what is it that God said? He said, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Worship team, if you'd come forward. Everybody, let's stand. And deacons and elders, if you could please present the elements. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord God, that you are our shield, that you are our exceedingly great reward. Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a plan for our lives. Lord, we choose not having seen to believe. And we receive the promise of your blessing. For you have come, Lord, to give us life and that abundantly, and there is nothing that the enemy can do that will interfere with what you have intended for us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We glorify your name and we lift it up, Lord, for you are good and your mercy endures forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.